Welcome to Community of Resistance, the podcast where I speak with people who do the work of resisting the empire to try to give folks uh, who are interested in activism and advocacy the kinds of practical tools they need to pursue justice and peace. On today's show, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to my friend Shonda Ja, who serves as founder and director of the Oakland Peace Center, a collective of 40 organizations created creating access, equity, and dignity for all in Oakland and the Bay Area. Chanda is also an author in her two most recent books, Pre-Post-Racial America, Spiritual Stories from the Front Lines. She takes on the subject of race and spirituality in America. Chanda's newest book, Transforming Communities, How People Like You Are Healing Their Neighborhoods, focuses on concrete ways that regular people are creating change community by community in an era where positive change can feel impossible. I've known Shonda for some time now, and I find her to be one of the most insightful people I know about the pursuit of justice and how that is at the heart of faith. So I wanted to talk to her about how it is that religious communities can get involved in activism and advocacy in the service of change. So welcome, Shonda. Hey, thanks so much. So before we get into all of that, tell me a little bit about how you got started doing this kind of work. So I guess my personal story isn't all that interesting. I think, you know, I come from an interfaith background. My father's Hindu, my mother's Scottish Presbyterian. And so that neither of them really knew what to do with the fact that I loved Jesus so much. Uh, Jesus was my best friend from the age of three. And this was a little bit alarming to both of them. Um, But they have been very (laughs) gracious and supportive all of these years. But I also had, and I think all kids do, have a real sense of fairness, right? What's fair and what's not. Uh, And maybe it was that Uh, While my family are immigrants, I grew up mostly in Akron, Ohio, which is a union town, and I grew up there in the wake of the decline of kind of industrial America and the decline of jobs that could actually feed a family, right? We were losing all the rubber Mm -hmm. industry jobs. So I grew up kind of in the shadow of what it means to used to have been living a decent life and for most of the people there not to be anymore. So I think for me, there was always a connection between Jesus and justice. And when I was in college, my university, I think I was holding on to this three-year-old notion of fairness. My university had set up a separate for-profit corporation that handled the contracts for all of the cleaning staff and the catering services so that they could hire people at minimum wage, even though that was against the university's policy. They had set up a separate private uh, foundation, private corporation, to manage all of those business dealings with the exact same board as the board of directors for the university. So when when the workers started organizing and saying, this is unjust, this is unfair, it was really natural for me to get involved in that campaign as a student at that university because... I loved Jesus, I loved justice, I loved fairness. And I think those are probably some of the earliest origins of me getting involved in this kind of work. And to this day, labor organizing continues to be at the heart of a lot of my work. That's unfortunately one of those areas that often flies under the radar of people who care about mm-hmm. social justice and so forth. The the idea of organizing collectively is so yeah. important 
uh, for people who don't have a voice. And it's something that, that we just don't pay as much attention to. And I think it's also to. one of those moments where sometimes when we have a lot of privilege, and I was a university student, it doesn't get more much more privileged than that in this country, I don't think. Right. So sometimes when we have a lot of privilege, we're discouraged from seeing ourselves as connected to people without privilege. And so this was one of those moments I was really Mm -hmm. lucky that the community organizers and the workers' rights organizers said, hey, students, these are the people you are in daily relationship with. They're not just your servants. They are your community. How are you going to show up with them? And I'm really, really grateful that that wasn't just a noblesse oblige kind of thing. It wasn't just I am doing for those less fortunate. It was framed in terms of these are your people. Are you going to show up with them or not? I'm really excited to have you on today to talk about how it is that congregations can have an impact on the world around them, not just on what happens inside the four walls of of a church building, but but in the neighborhoods and the cities and the locales where they're situated. But I, but, but I want to start by asking you, why is it that you think that congregations should uh, Think about getting involved in activism and advocacy on these kinds of social justice issues. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because I think some people think of, and this is a strategic error, I will say straight up front. I think mm-hmm. some people think we should get involved in justice because it'll grow the grow the church. I want to mm. tell a story that I think is a success story, and it's folks I'm really proud of. And Derek, I know you've heard me talk about the folks from First Christian Church of Oakland numerous times already. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I've started thinking about them in a whole new way because we just got this beautiful profile written up about the Oakland Peace Center and First Christian Church of Oakland. And what was really funny to me is I told the story as a success story. The journalist they had sent out to meet with us thought of this as a success story. When it got back to the editor, she kept asking the journalist to rewrite the story because how could this be a success story when a church that started out 12 years ago with 10 in worship was now a congregation with six in worship? And she was just horrified by this narrative and couldn't, and was like, how do we publish this story as a success story? But what I want if it's okay to roll back about 12 years, I got to First Christian Church of Oakland. There were 10 people in worship on an average Sunday in a 40,000 square foot building. So back in the 1940s, they had had 1,500 in worship. They were one of the flagship Disciples of Christ churches on the West Coast and a whole combination of things, but particularly white flight had depleted their uh, worshiping community. So about a year into my time with them, We went through a discernment process and said, what is it this church wants to contribute to the neighborhood? What what are the Mm -hmm. unique gifts of this? And we were already up to 15 at that point in time. We were already growing and thriving. Um, But that group of 15 people said, we want to create peace in the midst of violence. And if you're from Oakland, Mm. you know what that means because you don't live in Oakland for very long. Well, you haven't been a part of the Oakland community without losing someone in the streets. Um, And they said they wanted to be a place of family in the midst of brokenness. And 12 years later, I know that that's ableist language. That was the language we had at the time. But a place of family Mm -hmm. in the midst of families being torn apart. And a place where people can connect to the Holy Spirit. And 
so what was mm-hmm. r- remarkable about that is I think a lot of churches want to be a lot of things to everybody. And this church said, no, mm-hmm. we know what it is we want to be and what it is we want to offer. And as a result of that, the church began to build up relationships with the folks in the communities doing in the community doing anti-violence work, the folks building up family systems, the folks really creating holy experiences in the community. They started building up those relationships, showing up for those organizations. Uh, fast forward 12 years, there are six people in worship at First Christian Church of Oakland, but last year the Oakland Peace Center partners served 86,000 people. And if that's not a success wow. story, I don't know what is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. And part of it is because they reached out to the folks who were doing the work, said, how can we support you? And over the course of several years of learning and showing up and volunteering and supporting, they realized their building could be a hub for work that would not otherwise be able to thrive in our community that needed that work so much. Which is which is so grounded in generosity yes. right to, oh, to say yeah we had this thing and it's still worth something and we'd like to share it with everybody exactly. else that's such a wonderful thing one of the problems though that comes up in doing these sorts of community based organizing and so forth is that it inevitably I suspect you run into this yourself. Inevitably, somebody will come along and say, um, well, shouldn't the church stay out of politics? <laughs> how, do you, how do you answer that question? So, you know, what's interesting to me is, well, I have a couple of answers for that because I was just having that conversation with a colleague of mine on Twitter the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you consider Twitter an actual conversation, but uh, <laughs> we, we were... She was, she was saying that that was the pushback she often got in her work. And I said, the thing is, every church is political. The churches that refuse to talk about politics are propping up the politics of the status quo. I don't know about you, but that's not a politics I want to be aligned with. And if all church is, in fact, political, I want to be aligned with the politics that is about liberating the oppressed, which is the kind of politics that Jesus was involved in. I dodged that. I don't want to use that metaphor in this. So I avoided that problem by by the fact that my congregation was impacted by violence and was impacted by policies that hurt people of color and was impacted by mm-hmm. anti-LGBT attitudes. And so they knew already that the churches that were preaching hate uh, were being political, that the churches that wouldn't preach about justice were being political. They already understood that. And so when I showed up and started talking about race from the pulpit, they were like, you're the first pastor we've had who's done that so much, but it aligned with their lived experience. And so I had the luxury and privilege of being with a congregation that already understood church is always political. It should never be partisan. But it should always right. be about the politics of justice, freedom, and liberation for people who are suffering. In my, you know, in, in, in my experience, there are a number of Protestant mainline congregations who are committed to social justice mm-hmm. in theory, but they just don't know quite where to begin to get their yeah. hands dirty in yeah. this kind of work. What would you tell them? I think 
I've been really having lots of fun conversations with churches recently, churches that are doing charity work and also know that they keep serving Mm -hmm. the same people over and over. And the conversations we've had about moving from charity to solidarity aren't me convincing them that that's an important shift. It's really simple, technical conversations about, hey, If you get to know the people you're serving on a first-name basis, if you're actually having meals with them and learning their stories, that's the first step, right? Uh, Moving from serving to being in relationship. And I said, the next step is if you call your city council members and say, hey, we're going to have a town hall on homelessness, they're going to show up because that's the privilege of living in a Christian nation, even if it doesn't admit that it's a Christian nation. Uh, we're still listened to in a different way by our, by our elected officials. Heck, I'm as left-wing a pain in the butt to my city council as anybody. They'll still take my calls, um, at least, again, mm-hmm. Uh, my left wing and your left wing are very different. Um, so my city council are, you know, they're at least on the right side of a lot of the national stuff. So they'll still take my calls. Sure. If I'm in relationship with homeless people and homeless service providers and homeless rights activists who can't get their calls returned, and I host forum on homelessness at my church, and if we use something mm-hmm. like the World Cafe model for conversation, which creates space for everybody's voice to get heard, then my city council members will end Mm -hmm. up learning about what homelessness is like from homeless people. And that changes the paradigm considerably. And I didn't have to protest or riot or write letters to anybody. I just had to invite the right people into the room because that's the power that I have as, as a church person. It's really fun to get into the tactical, technical side of this, I think. And, you know, I, I've written about in this book that I'm getting ready to publish in the fall, Micah 6.8, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. My contention is that churches are pretty good at mercy, these acts of charity, but the doing justice part is not something that they really have thought much about because Uh the, the issue of justice is a structural one. It's not just to forget everybody's heart right. They'll somehow transform the world. That There are actually things built into the way the systems work that are obstacles to that kind of transformation. And so justice is an important thing that I would contend people in churches don't often think about. Hold on to where you're going with that, because it crosses my mind to mention we in the United States are particularly at a disadvantage. The folks who were writing the Hebrew Bible lived in a communitarian culture. They lived in a place where everything was systemic. So when people talked about there needs to be justice, no one heard that as you're making me feel bad because you're saying I'm a bad person because nobody heard it that way because everybody understood these were systems. And Mm -hmm. the disadvantage that Uh, America that the United States has put at is that we're so grounded in this myth of individualism that suggests what we've got is our own making and Mm -hmm. what, what is wrong is about individual error. And so any conversations about any sort of injustice become deeply personalized because we are 
shaped by this culture that suggests everything is individual, when throughout most of history, that was never the understanding. And so I think we're at a unique disadvantage, and it makes it harder to recognize the ways that our scriptures can actually be a tool to help us be about that work. That that work is not a kind of sports utility option package to the whole <laughs> faith thing. It's it, it, it it's central, yeah. right? It it is the most faithful expression of what faith is about. Yeah. So let me ask you: If a congregation wanted to launch out into this world and work of uh, social justice, what do you think is the most important thing for them to remember uh, when they first get involved? I think the good news for me, I come out of a model of organizing called faith-rooted organizing, a little bit different than faith-based organizing. We don't have to go into any of those details here. But what I will say Mm -hmm. is important about it is one of the things it was informed by was the model of multi-sectoral organizing from the Philippines. I really geek out on learning what we can benefit from uh, other countries. Uh, In the Philippines, there was a model, there is a model of organizing that says, you know, when we're building up a campaign, the students send representatives on behalf of the students. The mothers send representatives on behalf of the mothers. The unions send labor representatives. The schools send teachers. The And the faith community sends people of faith to make sure that all of the mm-hmm. sectors involved in justice work are represented in creating the strategy and the organizing plan. What I love about that is the church doesn't have to be the legal minds. The church doesn't have to be the organizing geniuses. The church doesn't have to be the policy wonks. The church brings what it is good at. And what we are good at is ritual. What we are good at is prayer. Mm -hmm. What we are good at is accompaniment to people who are suffering. And what we are good at is hope in the face of hopelessness. There are lots of things that we bring to that table, but we don't have to bring all of the other things. So what I want to say is the best work I have done as a person of faith has been when I have been able to be a person of faith alongside the other folks who bring their gifts and their expertise. It is such a relief to know I don't have to do all of the things. Now, it freaks out the organizations sometimes. I know the Ella Baker Center was Mm -hmm. working on a prison, a youth prison campaign. They were trying to make sure that youth got more support so that they didn't recidivate. And the Unitarian Church in town called them and said, hey, we really believe in supporting our youth so that they don't end up as adults in prison. We want to help your campaign. And the Ella Baker Center was like, but you're a church. And they were like, yeah. And and they were like, don't, so you want to help us? And the church was like, yeah, we're really excited. We don't want to build our own thing. We want to support your work. And the Ella Baker Center was like, okay, so we're having this rally in front of the courthouse. Do you want to come? And the church was like, we would love to come. And and the Ella Baker Center said, so do you want to, I, I don't know, do you, you pray, right? Do you want to pray at this? And so... So the church showed up and the people whose family members are in prison didn't just get their rights lifted up, didn't just get the righteous indignation that is a great part of a rally. They got their broken hearts prayed over Mm -hmm. because they're suffering human beings. They're not just a political Uh issue. Um, And that's just, 
I think there's something glorious about sometimes the organizations will be freaked out that religious folks want to be a part of it. I have by and large never experienced an organization saying they don't want us to be there. It just takes a while to figure out how we can be useful to them. And when we show up, we provide something they didn't even know they needed sometimes. You know, in working here, yeah. uh, I'm in, in Kentucky and in Louisville. We're a state that largely identifies itself as religious. Yep. And it begun to dawn on community leaders and activist organizations over the past, I'd say, I don't know, seven, eight years, that a lot of the things that they want done may not translate well out in the county unless they're framed as a part of people's faith experience. And that's a kind of a tricky thing. For example, you know, I, I've done some work with uh, LGBTQ people here in Louisville and the, the fairness organization. And as you might imagine, LGBTQ people often have yeah. had really bad experiences with the church. Yeah. And so they're very skittish. Uh, many of them are very skittish about anybody showing up with religion. And, and yet it's begun, it, I'd say probably starting in 2011, 2012, we began to have conversations about how is it that we can help people who believe that anti-LGBTQ fairness laws, for example, are a matter of their being faithful to to theology. How do we begin to frame this so that they understand being just toward these these folks is is actually yeah. the faithful response? But my my experience, and I suspect you may have some experience like this also, is that it takes time. Yes relationships that you you can't just show up one day right. and say, um, I want to do all the things. No, that's totally on point. You have to start with how can I help? Is there anything you need? Yes. What yeah. can we do for you? So that it becomes apparent that this is not just people right. kind of cleansing their consciences or whatever, that this is not about me. It's about the yeah. work you're doing. Yeah, and it's I interesting you mention that because that's the part of the story of First Christian Oakland that I left out was when we said, right, we want to be about the work of creating peace. We started reaching out to organizations, and I remember the Silence the Violence campaign was in full swing, and I met with somebody from from there, mm -hmm. and she said, yeah, can you hang up signs for our Silence the Violence Day? You know, go door to door, put them in storefronts. And she was shocked that we said yes, because she kind of assumed that we wanted front and center attention, uh, because she didn't know that we were 15 people. Uh, uh, she thought, you know, big church wants to get its brand on this campaign. So when she said, can you hang signs in the storefronts for us? Right. And that was the beginning of a long-term relationship. They are one of our founding partners at the Oakland Peace Center now. But it had to start with that and with, can you get some people to come and attend our Silence the Violence Day at the Oakland A's game? Hey, we could use some people to check people into mm -hmm. our Hip Hop for Change concert. Could you get some volunteers? And yeah, that's where the trust showed up was there's a slogan in the movement for black lives. And I'm not sure if it's still very much in use, but I heard it from Alicia Garza in the early days of BLM, where she said, we are low uh -huh. ego, high impact. And that has become kind of an implicit, mm. it is how we decide whether we want an organization to be part of the Oakland Peace Center. Is the organization, is the church, is the community low ego, high impact. And I think there's something to be said for when we can show up 
with that third part of Micah 6.8, walking humbly with our God. Yes. Then we're on to something. Yeah, because uh, sort of returning to the to the the issue of generosity, people begin to trust that yeah. your motives are not somehow hidden. We live in such a an yes. over advertised period of history in, in in the world that everybody thinks that and a transactional period. Yes. Yes. So so it's all about yeah. you're trying to sell me something. I'm not quite sure what the hook is yet. But you can't just give stuff away, right? You can't. And you're not just giving me something. You need something in exactly. return. I know that you've got to be wanting something. Exactly. And let's just be honest about it. The churches have a pretty yeah. bad track record when it comes to that kind of thing. I mean, that's often why they begin min- yep. certain ministries is because maybe it will draw more people in, as you as you said before. And I think especially younger people who've been their whole lives marketed to so fiercely, they can smell that kind of... Uh, bait and switch from a mile off and they just stay away. So what do you think? Are are there some other pitfalls that congregations ought to avoid in their attempts to begin to live out this witness of faith in in a public way? You know, there's a pitfall that liberal churches fall into. I I was, I did a lot of work organizing, uh, interfaith, doing interfaith organizing in response to the religious right. And so I I didn't realize there were going to be pitfalls that the religious left would face. Uh, And I think one of those is because our faith has been so grossly misrepresented so often, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people within mainline Christianity think the better option is to politely not reference our faith at all. Uh-huh. Um, and, pl- you know, kind of look at look for a lowest common denominator approach to faith. So as somebody who does a lot of interfaith work, my experience is a lot of non-Christians feel sold out when liberal, often white Christians show up in a space and say, I want to learn all about your Islam. I want to learn all about your Hinduism. I want you to represent fully your Jewish faith. I want to experience your Buddhist practice. I'm not Mm -hmm. going to own my Christianity. And I think we think we're being polite and respectful and trying not to dominate when in fact we're being withholding and unintentionally being consumers of other people's culture and faith instead of creating a space where we say, here's what motivates me to do my work. Here's the relationship I have with my faith that inspires me to do this work. What is it that inspires you to do your work from the best parts of your tradition? So I think that's an odd, if you're talking about interfaith work, that's a pitfall I want to, I want to make sure we avoid. I want us all to be bringing the best of who we are. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not even sure that it's only interfaith, but between faith and non-faith that there's some genuineness of mutuality in, in that kind of relationship rather than I can afford not, it's a kind of a, it seems to me uh, a form of privilege to, to, to be able to say I can afford not to own my faith because it's really a lot, it's, it's a lot easier for me to be a part of that faith than for you. So I I can bracket that while you live that out. But the the problem with that is of course, there's just, that's not a relationship. That's, I don't even know what to call it, but it's, it's, it's pretty one-sided. I agree. That's a great point. One of the things that happens when you get into this kind of work is that uh, as we kind of mentioned before, it can rub people the wrong way. How would you counsel congregations 
to deal with negative publicity because the reason I ask is because I know that many congregations are extraordinarily sensitive Uh to how they appear to the community and will often sort of pardon this metaphor, but they they will kind of pull their punches if they think that they're going to generate any kind of negative attention as a result of it. How do you think that congregations should deal with what I think is probably the inevitable problem of, of negative publicity? So I think the thing that's worth remembering is so the thing that has heart that has been the most heartbreaking about my work as as a faith leader showing up mm-hmm. intentional accompaniment of low wage workers in particular is how often they are profoundly mm-hmm. grateful for me showing up because mm. their own faith communities wouldn't and mm. I know I've been written about in negative ways. I know you have too. I know your faith community has been misrepresented all sorts of places. And I also know that the people who see those articles are the uh, the people who, many of the people who see those articles are people who didn't know a church would ever show up for them. And so, you know, they say, yes. all the celebrities say there's no such thing as bad publicity. I think it would be really beautiful if the church recognized mm-hmm. that when an article says we're pawns for labor, for example, uh, as if we can't think for ourselves, that there are lots of labor workers mm-hmm. who find themselves thinking, oh my gosh, my church couldn't be bothered to show up for me when I can't feed my children. They can't be bothered to fight for me in the streets. This is who Jesus actually is. It's not just me. It's not just in my head. The church really can be this thing. So every time that negative publicity comes up, I remember the fact that it's only negative if you don't have to worry about feeding your family, if you don't have to worry about whether you might get beaten up and even killed for the color of your skin or who you love or because of whatever animosity and hate is being stirred up at the state and national level that in many ways, that's exactly the positive publicity that people on the margins needed to hear about what the faith community can be. So I'm going to sound really unsympathetic when I say this. I've stopped trying to convince people to take those kinds of risks because if you're not willing to take those risks, it's because you care a lot more about the people who aren't suffering than the ones who are. It's not my job to convince you to care about people (laughs) who are suffering. And I know that you're not trying to convince them either. You're just trying to shore up support and heart for the people who are trying to take those risks. When I first started working in some of this stuff, I was acutely aware of how it appeared to the community and how the congregation here might react to sure. some of the negativity. And, and, and that, and that was really kind of old tapes of my own from earlier ministries and so forth playing in my head, but it, it's taken me a long time to trust that they actually care about this stuff. And, and, and I've said to people, you know, congregations ought to take some time to think about whether or not they should be more afraid of the people who leave than of the people who will never come. Because there's, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, given the right kind of information about you, might actually be interested in what you're doing. Absolutely. And, and, And I want to give people who are in those sorts of positions, the kind of encouragement that, that you, that you offer, because it's not easy. It's, it's, I mean, 
whether or not you're doing the right thing doesn't make it walking into that board meeting uh, <laughs> any easier, right? When That's you know right. you're going to get going to get lit up. Absolutely, and it does need to be. It does need to be a community thing. It can't just be the pastor going off by uh, or on his or her own mission, right? Right. Yeah, because. Yep. You get too far out ahead right. and, you know, you turn around and nobody's there anymore. Um, and that's a really dangerous place to be. So the relationship work that we were talking about earlier also happens within the congregation. And it that's, happens by the congregation right. meeting the neighbors and building up those relationships and beginning to see the humanity of the people in in their community. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of really beautiful work that precedes the best of the organizing and activism. It is a, a kind of constant cultivating of trust yeah. that you are who you say you yep. are uh, and that there's not another shoe that's going to drop. Yeah. Do you have any practical tips uh, for congregations thinking about jumping into this kind of work? Does anything strike you that we haven't talked about that needs to be said? I think it's worth I, I think I alluded to this earlier. I think a lot of churches are trying to be all things to all people, and you don't have to be. And in fact, I think you, you're at your best when you hone in on the thing that your congregation's deepest passion lies around, and not where your passion and the world's greatest needs intersect, but where your passions and the gifts of your community intersect is where the best work's going to happen. So I think there's something to be said for, it's great that you've got somebody in your church who cares about homelessness and someone who cares about LGBT issues and somebody who cares about racial justice and somebody who cares about uh, the environment. If you choose one of those issues, you'll get to work on all of them, but you'll be working on yes. them from a different intersectional place. So there is absolutely nothing wrong with honing down. In fact, I think the best chance a church has for having a big impact is honing down to the thing that you have the greatest passion about and connecting with those in your community who have the same passion and are bringing lots of gifts to that work. What a wonderful way to wrap this up because your insight on this stuff never ceases to impress me how thoughtful you are about this. And I really appreciate you taking the time to... Absolutely. Well, I think it reflects very much a lot of the work that you've been doing, right? Well, I I, I hope so. That's why you think I'm so insightful. <laughs> I see what's going on. <laughs> no, I, I really do. Uh... But by working on LGBT justice, you've ended up working on homelessness because it turns out LGBT youth are impacted by that. By working on that, you've been connected with a lot of racial justice issues because issues, those are intersectional issues in the LGBT community. And so I've seen that happening in your own work as well. And it's uh, been a source of encouragement to me. Oh, thank you. I'm grateful to you. It, it is a wonderful thing to be able to do the kind of work that uh, you and I both care about. Well, Shonda Ja, go buy her books. <laughs> Seriously, she's she's great. And uh, I, I really appreciate your coming on, Shonda. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. I want to thank my guest today, Shonda Ja, Executive Director of the Oakland Peace Center. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Community of Resistance. Until next time. <laughs>